When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the next 25 minutes, you will hear our reaction to Stoke City poaching Stephen Schumacher from Plymouth Argyle. You'll hear our reaction to Troy Deeney, Trojan horsing David Horseman at Forest Green. But you'll also hear just how far you can go when you apply a national trust theme to EFL names. Hi everyone, happy Christmas and welcome to a little taster of a new podcast offering that we are launching over on ntt20.com which is called Dear Ali and George. It's a Q&A podcast where you, the listeners, set the agenda and I think we're going to have some real fun with it. Now the year of expansion as we call 2023 is coming to an end and certainly the biggest part of that has been the introduction and the building of ntt20.com which is something that George and I are really proud of and we're incredibly grateful for the team that we have built and we think and we hope that we're offering something really special and really valuable to people who love EFL content, in particular EFL content that is not about clickbait, is not about sensationalism, is not lowest common denominator, but is hopefully thoughtful and passionate and in parts humorous as well, but that ultimately keeps you up to date, keeps you abreast of everything happening in the EFL. Uh, this new podcast series is very much part of that. Now, it is for paid subscribers of ntt20.com and it will be only available to listen to going forward on ntt20.com. There is currently a Christmas discount. It's £52 for the year. That is £1 a week. You'll get this podcast, but also at least two other pieces of EFL written content every single week. And we have plans for more over the course of the rest of the season. And we have big plans to be the number one place for EFL transfer news and reaction and opinion and analysis, both during the January transfer window and, of course, in the summer as well. We really think there's a gap in the market for that and we think that we can provide it. So why not listen to the following podcast and if you like the sound of it and if you like the idea of a slightly more relaxed, uh, less formal, but equally passionate EFL-based discussion uh, between myself and George and our audience, then do head to ntt20.com and sign up today, regardless of whether you choose to do that or not. Thank you for continuing to listen to Not The Top 20 in 2023, and we hope you enjoy this snippet from Dear Ali and George, episode one. You're listening to Dear Ali and George, a podcast by Not The Top 20. Dear Ali and George. Dear Ali and George, quick start for 10 from me. What do you make of Shuey leaving Plymouth and heading to Stoke? And do you expect any big change in results or performances for either club? 
Cheers for the question, Sam. George, Shuey, Stoke, Plymouth, go. Do I think there'll be a change in performances and level from the two clubs? Yes. Wow. Well, I mean, not necessarily ultimately positively or negatively, but <laughs> I, I'm not going to sit here and say I think Stoke are going to suddenly massively improve and Plymouth are going to drop off. But I do think... I'm hoping this is going to be the pod of piping hot takes. But, you know, Schumacher will come into Stoke, I think, as a completely different personality, at least, to Alex Neil. Now, Alex Neil very much... Um, Pretty consistent in his outlook on things. Doesn't get overly high or low. I think Schumacher will come in with a bit more energy and a bit more purpose. I think the style of football will be... It definitely got very stale this season at Stoke. I think Schumacher clearly um, encourages his side to play with total freedom, which I think will reflect itself, if not immediately, then over a couple of weeks. I also vehemently disagree with the idea that a, a job itself can be a poison chalice. Yes, there may not have always been the best environment for a manager in which to thrive at Stoke but I do think at the moment they've made some appointments in recent times behind the scenes you know I know Ricky Martin isn't um, the most popular person in Stoke right now but the likes of him and Jared Dublin you know making appointments in order to build the footballing infrastructure away from the dugout as well which I think Schumacher will need because he certainly thrived in an environment at Plymouth Argyle where that existed you know and that's the key thing for me here with Argyle is that I think there are similarities in terms of the job that Nathan Jones did over two spells at Luton and Shuey at Plymouth, where I don't think Plymouth Argyle was Schumacher FC. They were doing incredibly well when he was assistant manager under Ryan Lowe. He oversaw a period of time where they continued to be very good, but a key part of the reason why they've been so good is that there's been their youth team recruitment, the players they've managed to sign. Um, for not that much money, like to Morgan Whitaker and Bali Mumba, for example, who they will sell him for a lot more, and his ability to coach those young players. If they're able to to recruit a manager who has a similar track record working with young players, then there's no reason why that can't uh, continue as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we will see changes. But if I was a Plymouth Argyle fan, I wouldn't be overly negative. It is sad. you know. I've never seen such a measured reaction on social media to the news that Shuey was leaving, where to a man, they're all like, Thank you so much. You're a club legend. You're also now a rat. Goodbye. There's there's always this discourse about Stoke in particular because they have so consistently poached managers from other championship clubs of like, oh, I don't understand why you would leave a good situation for Stoke City, which has been a bit of a managerial graveyard. And I mean, the more it happens, I guess the more I start to lean towards that. But also the kickback is always... You don't understand how rich Stoke City's owners are. You don't understand perhaps how unbelievable the facilities are compared to Argyle's. Maybe we don't appreciate how important that is for a manager. We certainly don't appreciate how they have to be thinking selfishly because of the volatility of the career that they're in. We probably don't appreciate because uh, football, well, money and football always seems so ridiculous anyway you know, how different it will be to earn maybe two, three times as much in a managerial role as the one that you had already. I mean, in that sense, I can see why he's gone. Do I think he's like a managerial messiah? Not really. Uh, I can absolutely see why Stoke have gone with him. I've got no criticism with the appointment, but I've broadly understood why they've hired almost everyone over the last five to six, seven years based on the individuals, based on the individual's body of work. But none of them have worked, so there is there is this like mystery to Stoke that I'm I'm kind of interested in, and I'm happy to say while I agree with you, I I 
don't think it has to last forever. I am kind of intrigued as to like what the intangibles are that make it seemingly so much more difficult to achieve there than elsewhere. I mean, they have finished 16th, 15th, 14th, 14th, 16th, and they're currently 19th. It has been desperately tedious and underperforming uh, half a decade or so. I would also say I think Schumacher had a serious touch starting his managerial career yeah. at Argyle because of the systems that they have in place. We bang on a lot about Simon Hallett being among the best owners in the EFL, certainly one of the most reasonable if you're one of his employees on the footballing side, but also because he has built a team outside of the <clears throat> head coach that excel in the roles that they're asked to do, are empowered to make decisions and everything works together really well. So Neil Dewsnip is a massive, massive figure at Plymouth Argyle when it comes to things that happened before Schumacher, under Lowe, building the recruitment team, just providing systems in place to make it so much easier to be the Plymouth Argyle manager than it is elsewhere. Clearly, Schumacher did very well within that. He's He comes across as a very popular guy, good sort of soft skills, like a good leader, good modern man-manager. But he was part of an, of, an, of an incredible structure as well. And when you get removed from that and play somewhere else, I don't think you can ever truly predict how it's going to go. The football analysis that I'll bring here is, you know, I, I sort of have to put my, my tin hat on. I'm not that sold on him as a coach or tactician, to be honest with you. Like, Argyle have played, on the one hand, really exciting, fun football and scored tons of goals in League One and in the Championship. From an attacking standpoint, no notes. I love the way that his teams attack. I love how quick they are to break forward in transition, how many bodies they commit. I really like the way that he lets talented 1v1 players be exactly that and doesn't put too many, like too much structure on them. But overall, like defensively, there have been big trade-offs that have, you know, because of that, that led to them having a below average defence in League One, if you look at expected goals against, the worst XG against in the championship this season. I have a theory that the vibes were so good at Argyle, everything was moving in such a good direction that they were able to ride this wave that helped them overcome things like that, which normally, if you have one of the worst defences in the league, would put you right down at the bottom. With Stoke, where there isn't as much of a vibe or a wave or energy, whatever you want to it's call it. It's definitely a vibe. It's not a very positive one. Right. I just, I worry that, I worry transposing that sort of football onto Stoke City. I do think the fans will enjoy how they attack. I do think it will suit some of their players. But in terms of like flying up the table, challenging for the playoffs where Stoke think they should be and, and what their budget suggests, I'm still not sure this is like a sure thing, so to speak. Uh, and I'm not sure it has to be a huge issue for Argyle in the long term either, just as Ryan Lowe leaving wasn't. Um, possibly some short-term pain. But long-term... I wonder whether our guy will be in a better position than Stephen Schumacher in two years' time. Day Ali and George. Forest Green have just sacked their manager, David Horseman, and have certainly not horsed around in finding his replacement in Troy Dina. Considering Forest Green's position in the table and their new manager's lack of experience in the role and such circumstances, do you think... Troy can save the club or considering they're even money to get relegated should I be sticking my student loan on them getting relegated gambled responsibly of course 
Yeah, please don't uh, gamble your whole student loan uh, and please do gamble responsibly. And I also wouldn't be uh, rushing to back Forest Green to get relegated at this stage. I think there's a long way still to go. As we know, with two relegation spots, it is such a short period needed of good form in order to push your, pull yourself away from the relegation zone. And there's no denying that Forest Green have the players, the individuals in their squad to be able to do that. Although, from what I can tell, they seem to have lost one of those today where... Um, I certainly didn't have Troy Deeney retiring from professional football um, being announced in a statement about him taking over as manager at Forest Green as being the likely means. But from what I can see, he's the head coach now and there's no mention of him being a player anymore. So I wonder if that's him, a player who's been starting up front for them in most games, suddenly not being part of their squad anymore. Um, it's an interesting appointment. I- I've been chatting on Twitter today on DM with a, a Forest Green fan called Tom Carter, who... You know, has expressed his concern that um, that uh, you know Deeney's been part of Horseman's coaching staff, and therefore, you know, why would he be able to um, change what has been such a disappointing start to the to the season or season so far? I don't think it really works like that. I think when you're an assistant manager or a, or a coach, you feed into the head coach or the manager, and you carry out whatever they want you to do. An example is, of course, John Massino, who spent the first half of last season as Carl Robinson's assistant at Oxford when Oxford were absolutely terrible. He then moved to Portsmouth and quite clearly has quite a lot about him from a managerial point of view. They're different roles, they're different jobs. If Deeney has a decent vision as to how to play the game and how he wants his teams to look, he wouldn't necessarily be able to implement that um, at Forest Green. And there's also another side to this where David Horseman came in in the summer with a, a really good reputation as a coach. And those that hired him, Dale Vince, Alan Steele, you know, they would have got references on his coaching ability but without going full Joey Barton here, like unless you've been coached by him, then it's going to be hard to really understand how good a coach he is. You know, in a, in a job interview, you can only learn so much. It's like, you know, interviewing for a chef's job and not getting him to cook for you, just getting him to talk about their cooking and what they do. Like until you taste their food, they might talk a very good game, but it's hard to know what they do. With Dini, he's been working on the grass at Forest Green for the last three months. So those making the decisions would have been able to um, assess his coaching ability. The players that he's working under now, I'm sure, would have been consulted as to how they feel about his coaching ability. So that at least they're not going in blind. You know, he's a name. Um, whether or not he's going to be a good manager probably has little to do with that. There's no denying that he was a, a pretty good leader in his time as a senior player um, going forward. So I think the decision to sack Horseman was always coming. Deeney is clearly a in many ways a left field suggestion and I think giving him the, the full-time job immediately rather than a, a caretaker role is pretty surprising but I think it, it comes with some merit as well I'm, I'm not going to be quick to write it off Dear Alan George what do you reckon the next tactical innovation in the EFL will be? You've uh, devoted a fair bit of time to discussing uh, the change away from three at the back, to white forwards in the championship in particular. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what you see as the next frontier of uh, tactical innovation in the EFL. Thank you. Great question, Peter. I think a difficult question uh, on some levels because even within the EFL, the three leagues often look and feel quite different. I think it's easy to say that things trickle down from the Premier League and then from the Championship to League One and League One, League Two. I also think there are there is some merit in that. I do think that is borne out uh, over certainly recent history. And so possibly an easy answer, 
but one that I think is it, I'd, I'd still sort of back to be true is just more of the same. And by more of the same, I mean uh, more inspiration being taken from elite level football, um, which will move in a trend with uh, the uh, current sort of youth system and the elite level of coaching. Uh, those academies, those under 21 teams in the Premier League, because they are so overstocked with players between the age of well, 16 and 21, most of whom will never play for those teams, means that that will be a huge part of the player pool in the EFL over the next 10 years. Those players will have all been coached in a certain way. The coaches themselves will often move into managerial roles as, as we've seen in the EFL. And I do think that general influence from not just the Premier League in terms of the senior teams that we see taking to the field in Premier League games, but actually probably more about uh, elite academies and what comes from them uh, over time. I think we will see, you know, more specifically in the championship, the teams that have almost been not pioneers this season, but have, have been kind of early adopters of this. I don't even really know how to describe it. This this approach that really embraces the transition moments rather than um, tries to become a necessarily possession dominant team, a team that tries to bring teams onto them that wants to be pressed high in order to create space to attack. I think that there have been a few early adopters of that, in particular uh, Ipswich, Blackburn, uh, Leeds to an extent as well. Of course, we've got Leicester City playing their 3-2-5. That's very, that is pretty new at this level. It's it's different to what Russell Martin, for example, has been doing over the last few years. I dare say we'll see more fullbacks inverting uh, into the middle of the pitch in order to, to try and create more space for the wide forwards, as that's been a big increase as well. And then I expect that League One, which has been a little bit slow on this front, will probably start to, to develop uh, a little bit more in, in terms of matching the championship. Uh, and League Two as well over time. So it, it's very hard for me to look and think of, of like one specific tactical thing uh, in terms of maybe player positions or unusual roles becoming more and more of a thing. Uh, but I would just say that broadly what we've seen over the last 12 months, I think we will see more and more of over the next few years. And I, I do believe that championship football in particular will look incredibly different uh, in five years time to how it did even last year. Dear Ali and George, in recent years, we've seen some of the AFL's more bigger clubs, such as Ipswich, Sunderland, both Sheffield clubs and more, drop into League One and fail to get out. What is it about that division that these types of clubs find it so difficult to make a swift exit back to the Championship? I think it's just hard to win promotion from any division, George. And often teams that go down go down because they're in pretty bad shape. Uh, what do you think? I think there is a complacency to sides that get relegated from the championship into League One, where if you do that, and we saw this certainly with Ipswich, we saw it with Sunderland as well, if you are still, realistically, if you're a club that size, going to be able to dwarf the um, the uh, amount you can spend on wage bill, wages and the rest of things than most of those leagues. And generally, you can probably recruit bottom-end championship players to come to your club. But I'm very much of the belief that if you're a poor championship player, you're probably not good enough to be a top top end League One player, and I think that translates fairly regularly across. Where if you look at players, you know, even it's easy because of derbies. Um, you know, you get immune to it quite quickly. But I think it's easy, and also because of the the, the restraints they've had to work under. But the pre season aspirations and expectations of derby 
both this season and last season were that they should be far, far better than they have been. When you look at their recruitment, yes, it's been difficult for them to recruit because of the, the issues they've had in the past, but certainly that first summer when they came down, it was free, it was free agents basically from the championship. And people were like, well, he's a championship player. And then he came to League One and actually, no, like a, a, a middling to, to poor 31-year-old championship player isn't necessarily going to be a top-end League One player. So I think that's part of it. And generally, all the teams you mentioned there, yeah, pretty much all of them except for I'd say Sheffield Wednesday maybe being the, the outlier, they've have gone up when they've completely restructured the way that they operate in term in the transfer market. They've looked to recruit from below, they've looked to invest in younger talent. And maybe it's because League One is ultimately a very physical league where if you've if you're carrying a lot of players on big wages whose legs aren't what what they what they used to be, that doesn't lend itself very well to the league. I think teams who go up generally are those who have legs and whilst being technically good are those that dominate without the ball too so I think there is an acclimatization period within the complacency that, that that is generally at clubs when they come down where it takes some time to realize what is needed to win in league one dear Ali and George here's a question for you I hope it's an interesting one I've recently renewed my mum and dad's national trust membership as part of their Christmas present and it really got me thinking in the championship we've got Keen and Dewsbury Hall a 16th or potentially 17th century country estate, which was probably once used for an ITV period drama, I imagine, set over several sprawling hectares, ideal family day outs, although I do find the gift shop is a little bit on the pricey side, and they've recently started charging for parking. In League One, you've got Nelson Abbey, a place I'm convinced I was taken to on a year nine school trip. It is educational, it's informative, and it's entertaining for all ages as well, and the cafe boasts an unrivaled selection of quiches. Further down the pyramid, we've got uh, Cascading Luke Waterfall. Admittedly, a bit of a tourist trap these days, but if you time it right and you visit on a Wednesday afternoon during term time, you'll probably be able to secure a lovely quiet picnic spot. All this is a pretty long-winded and boring way of asking, are there any other EFL players, past or present, who would make ideal destinations for my parents to visit with their recently renewed membership? I want them to get my money's worth. Thanks very much. I think that's one of the best questions I've ever heard in this show. Uh, it's only been episode one, but I love that. Uh, Ali, you have been working on this all day. <laughs> I had a feeling that our listeners would end up being more creative than we are. <laughs> and that's only going to be a benefit to the show going forward. I mean, Jack, your parents can have an incredible day in the EFL National Trust for all the things that you've mentioned. But so there's actually so much more as well that you might not even realise exists as part of that membership. Do they like walking do they like trekking do they like climbing things because we've got the flynn downs and not far from there is the brad hills quite just if you go all the way to where's ben nevis wales yeah next to ben nevis is no is scotland scotland next to ben nevis is ben sheaf that's the slightly smaller mountain than ben nevis if you're into ge- geology there's tons of aden stone yeah. which actually used to be called aden flint confusingly if you're into archaeology there's the medieval site of a big find big big find and it's filled with incredibly rare roman era brad Potts. very good there's a huge area of woodland that's part of this ben woods josh woods ryan woods richard wood and then all points of the compass luke southward kieran westward freddie eastward and ollie norwood wow is richard wood just one tree <laughs> yeah but it's a big one <laughs> And if you throw a brick in him, he'll head the fucker back. 
Uh, you've got the Owen Dales, which is obviously a, a big group of valleys. Um, one of the most interesting ones for me as a, a huge uh, horse racing fan is Darnell Furlong. Mm. So this is a stretch of land that uh, measures an eighth of a mile. It's just outside the village of Darnell. Uh, it's where horse racing was first invented and purveyed. It's incredible history. George loves it there as well. And there's, if they want to keep it simple, you can have a picnic in Sam Field. That's just a field. Uh, ben Whitfield is a field of wit. wheat. <laughs> um, but for me, because I'm big into um, water features, natural water features, of course, not man-made. I mean, there's tons. There's Linden Dykes, which is the long uh, embankment that was built to prevent flooding in the area. There's Shack Ford. Regan Pool's probably the most interesting if they're into fishing, because you can actually fish for Alex Bass and Raquel Pike <laughs> in Regan Pool. That's good. But you do have to rent a fishing implement from Alex Rodman. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, Stanley Mills. Stanley Mills, uh, which is the inspiration for the line in the hymn Jerusalem, which is among those dark, satanic Stanley Mills. Mills. Yeah. I imagine your dad could be quite into that, because every... Warm-blooded British male loves the hymn Jerusalem. Uh, if you're into wildlife, of course, you've got uh, Max Bird. You've got Harrison Burrows, which is the largest population of wild rabbits in the UK. Uh, that's uh, in Cambridgeshire. If you're into Roman stuff, there's Rob Street, which is a very long, straight Roman road. If you're into wartime history, uh, there's Harvey Bunker, which was big during the Blitz. Uh, Andy Cannon is nearby. That's left over from the Napoleonic Wars. I think it was used at the Battle of Bagalow. <laughs> no. And just at the end, pop into the rose garden uh, full of Danny Rose, Michael Rose, uh, loads of other roses. And at the end of all that, refresh yourself with a juicy burger from Matt Butcher and a craft beer from local brewery Tom Brewitt. Lovely. <laughs> Anything to add? Um, I, I don't think I can really follow that up. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't hear that you take a little sojourn down to uh, Paddy Lane. <laughs> <laughs> very nice or uh, or if you're hitting the countryside it's um, go and see Harvey Vale but um, oh. but otherwise that was exceptional the Vales and the Dales of the EFL National Trust Dear Andy and George thanks for listening to that snippet you know where to find it if you enjoyed it and you want more every single week starting at the beginning of 2024, ntt20.com. Have a fantastic Christmas. We'll be back again on the 27th of December, next Wednesday, to recap all the games from this weekend and from Boxing Day. Go incredibly well.